Please be seated. Last spring, one of the questions that came in during our Ask the Minister question box sermon was, how can we aid each other in our religious improvement? Well, there's a very simple first response to that one. It is, show up. (laughs) Be here. Be present. Listen to one another without waiting for your chance to interrupt. Give yourself a chance to be truly heard. But most of all, Be here. Be present. That's probably not enough to say there's the sermon. You can all go into the other room now. Um, So I'm going to go back to our 1842 covenant, since the query specifically quotes it, and go back in history a bit to explain what they meant then in 1842, what those words mean now, and why I hope it still matters. Now, be honest. When you got up this morning and you looked out the window and you realized it was not snowing, it was not raining, it was not 58 degrees below zero, and the sky was blue, how many of you thought there are a number of other things I could do instead of go to church? (laughs) Yeah, people do not come to a church because they're looking for something else to do. That was the case in the 1840s, and it is certainly still the case today. People have plenty of things in their lives that will keep them busy. People come to a church not for a thing to do, but for a way to be, looking for a way to learn who they are, looking for a community that will support them as they discover their own best selves, and then will help them live the kinds of lives that their best selves demand. The challenge to the church institutional is to keep itself both alive and out of the way while doing the work of being a place where the sacred can break through into the human heart, where the mind and the spirit together can do the spiritual work of learning how best to be human. The change involved today, which was not so much of an issue 170-odd years ago, is a shift from the idea that involvement in a church community is a form of consumerism. The idea that you come here, you pay your dues, as it were, you leave here having received something called religion or services called ministry that only someone with the title of minister can provide, trying to move from that to the very different conviction that involvement in a church community is in itself a form of ministry, a ministry in which everyone is involved on our own behalf and also on behalf of others. Now, that's not a unique idea. In my files, there's a Methodist church bulletin that identifies the congregation's pastor as the Reverend whatever his name was, and the church's ministers as all members of the congregation. And that's what I hope we're working toward. We're not there yet, but we're working toward it. And as we pay more deliberate attention to why we are here, then the sort of transformation that we are still and probably will always be struggling to undergo will become more clear, less threatening, more inviting. So if you're not here for the fun of running an institution, what are you here for? It's been suggested that there are four real reasons for joining a church. 
You're here because you are seeking a deep, not a superficial, but a deep community. You want to be cared about, to be encouraged to cherish yourself and to cherish others as inherently valuable individual persons with different skills, desires, dreams, and preferences. We are one, but we're different, and we carry each other. You want to discover sources of sustaining meaning for your own individual life and for our collective living. You want to find reassurance that our lives do matter, that life is indeed worthwhile. And finally, you want, we all want, we all need encouragement in the nurturing of an ultimate hope, which is the conviction that in spite of all the horrors that are real in life, in spite of the fact that because we are born, we know we must die, still there is a conviction that we can make a difference, that there is reason to keep striving, to keep reaching, to keep dreaming that the better world that we can ever so dimly imagine could one day be real. Putting it even more succinctly, we come to church in the hope of finding a community that will help us first to find ourselves, and second, to find the deep and true relationships, the interconnections that hold our individual selves together in a community of service, joy, self-knowledge, and love. We are here to aid each other in our moral and religious improvement, to be changed ourselves, and in that changing, to change the world. Now, this is not a new idea for Unitarian Universalists, so one of the logical places to go for guidance is back into our history when it was a new idea to the work of William Ellery Channing, the 19th century father of American Unitarianism and what he called self-culture. Channing was one of the strongest influences on our own founding minister, Augustus Conant. So what Channing had in mind will tell us a lot about what Conant had in mind when Augustus Conant wrote the words of our original covenant. The biggest break between the Unitarians and the Calvinist Trinitarians in the 18th and 19th century in New England was not so much about the doctrine of the Trinity as it was about faith in humanity. Calvinism clung to two particular notions. First, that everyone is fallen, sinful, depraved, totally devoid of goodness, a miserable wretch in the sight of God, justly condemned by God's righteousness to eternal damnation in hell. And don't you think you'd love coming to church every Sunday to hear that message? And bringing your children to hear it too? And the second part of the message to make it even better is that there's nothing a person can do about it because only the capricious, inscrutable will of God can save humanity. And God, said Calvin, has willed to save only some. And you won't know for sure if you're among the elect until you stand before the throne of God on the day of judgment. The liberals, the Unitarians, among them Channing, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Theodore Parker, Margaret Fuller, Augustus Conant, and many others, found that doctrine to be far more blasphemous than any questioning of the Trinity could ever be. 
and it was Channing who led the others in publicly challenging the Calvinist doctrine of hopeless human depravity. In his 1838 lecture on self-culture, Channing presents a common theme for him, the assertion that religion is not about dogma, it's about cultivating the self, by which he did not mean the ego or the personality, although both certainly would benefit thereby, but rather growing one's soul, growing one's spirit, one's essential self. In affirming the soul's capacity for self-knowledge and self-reformation, Channing explicitly challenged and denied the Calvinist doctrines of depravity and predestination. In Channing's view, every person is inherently worthy. Every soul contains a spark of the holy. Every self is capable of being intentionally cultivated through a process of drawing forth its own potential, like the plant is drawn out of the germinating seed. Self-culture, Channing insisted, is both possible and indeed demanded by our most basic nature as sons and daughters of God. Without claiming to be presenting an exhaustive study of the issue, Channing set forth what he understood to be the basic characteristics of this self-culture and some suggestions for how one might go about cultivating one's soul within the community of the church. The process of self-culture is first of all moral in nature, involving both reason and conscience in the deliberate examination of what is good, what is right, what is worthy. It is inherently religious, which is not about doctrine, remember. It's about how to live a life that is in harmony with the greatest purposes and possibilities of the universe. It's intellectual. Reason is a valued and necessary tool for what Channing called the disinterested and we might call the unprejudiced or unbiased examination of what constitutes value, worth, righteousness, benevolence, love. Self-culture is social. Even the most deliberate of individualists is part of a community. And the nurturing of those relationships is part of what helps nurture the self. We need one another for our moral and religious improvement. Self-culture is practical. And here Channing met what our Geneva forebears meant when they talked about practical goodness. Not a cynical utilitarianism, but rather a commitment to practice, to the living out of one's values in a way that will affect the self, the community, the world. Self-culture is open to and appreciative of beauty, the human creation of things of beauty, and even more the beauty of all creation itself. On this first Sunday of Earth Month, it's worth noting in passing, that Channing would have appreciated the philosophical position of our contemporary deep ecologists who encourage the development of our sense of connectedness to the natural world, not out of a sense of duty to protect it or a fear of what will happen if we don't, but more basically out of the pure joy of knowing oneself to be at home to be connected with, be part of the incredible, miraculous, natural world, the spiritually essential forerunner of taking responsibility to and for the planet. 
And finally, according to Channing, self-culture develops what he calls the power of utterance. It expresses itself. It shares its insights, its understandings, its dreams with others. It needs to be listened to. It can't be purely internal. It needs someone else to hear and respond. For Channing, who was, after all, first and foremost a preacher, this is done through writing and speeches, but those aren't the only means of speaking one's truth. Art, music, movement, work, play, all forms of human expression may give shape, depth, and voice to the soul. Channing's recommendations for pursuing self-culture start with personal commitment, and this is something that requires intentionality. We don't come to know our most basic selves without some effort. It's possible to live our entire lives never even thinking about what might lie beneath the superficial surface of our living. Self-culture demands, in the agricultural metaphor, the willingness to dig deep and face a few worms in the process. A serious commitment to self-control is next. This is not a priggish asceticism for Channing. It's the recognition that we are all too often too easily distracted by our appetites, frivolity, self-indulgence. And while there is nothing wrong with enjoying the gifts, the pleasures of life, giving ourselves over entirely to them will keep us on the surface and we will not become the souls we could have been. Channing next recommends intercourse with superior minds, by which he meant the great books of the Western intellectual tradition, but which I think he would allow us to expand. He specifically included literature, by the way, and popular literature at that as a way of living through the imagination a broader experience of life. I'm not sure how inclusive he would be of much of today's popular culture. I think of The Hunger Games, Doctor Who, never mind. (laughs) I suspect he would include it, however, as a way of stretching the imagination. And let it be noted that the reports of our early ministers, in particular Celia Parker Woolley, indicate that the programs of great book discussions, histories of the biblical lands, the practical teachings of Jesus, the meaning of beauty, the religious message of art, and other topics were regular features of their ministries. When Woolley was the minister here, she had not only the sermon to prepare, but six different classes on six different subjects, and it was expected that members of the congregation would attend those classes in order to aid one another in their moral and religious improvement. She said that preparing those classes took almost as much time as the preparation of sermons, and because the classes were so important, she would no longer be... uh, continuing her practice of visiting every home at least once during the course of the year, and it was her expectation that possibly the congregation would be just as relieved as she. (laughs) They probably were. Channing himself did not think it was wise to take in the ideas of others unquestioningly. Independent thought is necessary. This is self-culture that he's talking about, and each individual self in Channing's view, has its own integrity, its own wisdom. Swallow nothing without chewing it carefully first. 
If it does not meet the standards of your own soul, let it go. Channing was not familiar with the concept we call mindfulness, but he points to it in affirming attentiveness to one's work, whatever it may be, as part of the process of self-culture. He goes on to acknowledge that life is often difficult, and he suggests the intentional use of difficulties as opportunities for growth. Don't go looking for these, he warns, because life will send you more than ample amounts. But when these things come, use them. Full participation in the life of the democratic society is his next recommendation. And finally, he calls for serious religion, which he means, again, not attention to creeds or doctrines, but rather, quite frankly, the Unitarian Christianity of his day, a religion based upon reason, compassion, faith in a benevolent God, and faith in the possibilities of the human spirit. I think Channing would applaud Conant's phrase about aiding each other as an appropriate self-culture approach in nurturing a religious community's sense of its own collective ministry. The work of the church is indeed the encouragement of self-culture, first for its own members and then through the particular and collective ministries of their lives for the wider communities of which we are also part. To know what my special ministry, my service, my expression of gifts, my self-sharing, to know what that would most creatively be, I need to know who I am, who I want to be, what I most deeply value, what gives me joy. So I'd like to close with an invitation of self-culture, an invitation some of you may remember hearing before, to consider how well you know your own deepest self by inviting you to consider how easily could you, right this minute, ask yourself and answer a few simple questions. And you need not write down the responses. I'm not collecting them for future use. But how would you respond to the question, who am I? Who do I want to be? Who is the I that I at my best could be? And how would that self, how would that I, add to the sum of creativity, goodness, justice, and peace in this too often difficult world? When am I most at peace with myself? When am I most disappointed in myself? And that's not about superficialities or events beyond one's control. It's asking, when do I feel, however vaguely, that I have let my best self down? How do I know that I've done that? What values do I hold that I realize I'm failing to honor? And how do I turn my actions around? How do I want myself to be? What would help me to become my true self? What's hindering me? What's getting in my way? Those are the basic questions of the spiritual search, the quest for moral and religious improvement. And from our answers, individually and collectively, will come our real ministries, 
as a church, within the church, beyond the church, to a world that is waiting for what we can give. As I extinguish the flame of our congregation's chalice, take this flame, each of you, into the chalice of your own heart. Carry its message of beauty, hope, and love out into the world that needs you. Go forth together and be peace. Blessed be and amen.